Well, it's a delight, a delight to be back and to see some familiar, friendly faces from previous programs. Thanks to Kate and Bridgie for organizing this, to Henrietta for getting us started this morning and for hosting me at the, the house down the road. I feel like I'm always home here among like-minded, like-hearted people. And I hope the day will be a spacious day for you and for me as we explore a theme that was in the Christian tradition and indeed in the Jewish tradition through the early and medieval periods, really a central dimension of Christian experience, of religious experience, of spiritual life, darkness, a radiant darkness. We have three sessions today, and we will begin. Each of them will be framed by one text, by one poem, by one theological text, and by an image, or in one case, by a dance. We'll see a, a piece of a longer dance by the Pina Bausch Tanztheater in Wuppertal, the dance theater in Wuppertal. But a radiant darkness, when you saw that theme, when you looked at the program, I wonder what you were thinking. Darkness, in a sense, can't really be naturally radiant. Darkness can be frightening. It can be terrifying. It can numb us. It can also open us to the world around us in the silence of a deep night. We're sometimes much more aware of what surrounds us, what's around us, what's within us. It's one reason why the theologian, mystic, monk Bernard of Clairvaux spent the last part of his life, it may have been up to seven or eight years, preaching on a single text from the Song of Songs, uh, which is where we'll be later this morning or early afternoon. The beginning of the third chapter, on my little bed at night, I sought the one my soul loves. I sought him, but could not find him. Maybe a text you've never really noticed. Many people have never noticed the Song of Songs. Strangely, it's in the Bible. I remember meeting a, having a conversation with a Catholic person some years ago, and um, he asked what I was working on. I mentioned the Song of Songs. He said, where's that from? I said, well, it's, it's in the Bible. Well, it's not in the Bible that we use. I assured him it was in the Bible that the Catholic Church used, but he said, well, I've never, I've never, never encountered it. And in point of fact, up until about 10 years ago, it was never in the common lectionary. No text from the Song of Songs appeared in the sequence of readings that you would have experienced on Sundays, at least, in the Sunday liturgies. Which is strange, because in the Middle Ages, this was, this was the song of all songs. This was the theological text of all texts. So we'll use that text to orient us in the middle of the day, our time together. And then we'll move to, at the very end of our time, a remarkable theologian whom English people call Dennis. Uh, I met him as Dionysius. He's a quasi, not a fictional character, but a man who took the name of Dionysius, who was a convert of St. Paul. Uh, we know about him only in one text in the, from the Acts of the Apostles. But he was, in the Middle Ages, up until the Reformation period, often revered as the most important theological authority. Thomas Aquinas quotes him almost as often as he quotes the Bible. And for Thomas, there wasn't much difference between 
this theologian in the Bible. We'll look at one very short text, the opening prayer of a little text he called The Mystical Theology as a way of bringing our time to a close. And we'll end this evening, this afternoon, with an image from a famous painting, a well-known painting, now in France, in the city of Colmar, the Eisenheim altarpiece, or Eisenheim, some English people would say, but Eisenheim altarpiece. Um, and we'll end with a piece by Faure. So that's the shape of the day. I hope it will be spacious enough for you. Um, we'll have a brief break between the first and second segments at about noon. And the lunch came a little bit late. I will break for lunch at 1 o'clock for an hour. And we'll start again promptly at 2 with a final session and then a time for some quiet conversation and a closing meditation. Again, I'm delighted to be back and delighted you're here for this day together. Those of you who know me know that Rilke is never far from my life, from my thinking, from my spiritual journey. And we're going to look at a poem, a piece of a poem at the very beginning to frame how I've come to think about the spiritual, my own spiritual life and the spiritual life we share in the heart of God. It comes from a poem he simply called Wendung, or Turning Point. And I have written these poems on paper, which you'll get at the end of the session today. So don't feel you have to write down everything as it's coming. Um, right in the middle of this poem, written in 1914, which was a turning point in European civilization, just before the beginning of what came to be called the Great War, the war to end all wars, which was a great fiction, sadly. Just at the beginning, just before the war broke out, Rilke was trying to make sense of his own life and wrote one of the most remarkable poems in the German language, Wendel, in which we find these lines right in the middle. For the work of seeing, look, is a boundary. The work of seeing, look, 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 is a boundary. Hold that thought. Because what we're thinking about in the spiritual life really is a way that we train our vision, our way of seeing. I would say we acquire a, a second seeing, an inner vision. That's what the spiritual journey is about. That's why meditation is so important. That's why those of us who live extremely active lives need meditation more than the rest who live more passive lives. Martin Luther once famously quipped it's somewhere in the volume of the table talk, that he normally prayed at least an hour and a half every day, except when he was really busy, and then he prayed for three hours. There's great wisdom there. And those of you who meditate, I assume all of you, know that not simply in a cognitive way, but in a, in a spiritual way, in an inner way. The, the journey of the spiritual life is a journey into a deeper vision, a second seeing. And Rilke explains it this way. The matter of seeing, look, is a boundary. And the world, the more we observe it, wants to flourish in love. The world, the more we observe it, the more we look at the world we live in, the more we attend to the world, 
great definition of prayer by the great philosopher Simon Weil is the act of paying attention. It's learning to attend to the reality around us and within us. And this is exactly what Rilke is pointing us to. The world, the more we observe it, wants to flourish in love. If we don't observe it, we never notice this. And Rilke was not sentimental. By no means was he a sentimental writer or a pious writer in some flowery, florid sense. He meant looking hard at the reality of the world, at the difficulties, even the horrors of the world. Because that's the only place, if those are part of our experience, the only place where we can live our spiritual life, where we can come alive in God, and where God, strangely enough, can come alive in us. God is always waiting to come alive in us, but never, never forces our hand, never forces his way. The work of seeing is finished. For the matter of seeing, look is a boundary. Looking at things with our outer eyes is a limit. The matter of seeing, look, is a boundary. The work of seeing is finished. And here comes a beautiful phrase. Do now the heart work with the images you hold within. It's a word he made up. Rilke, German can do that. Some of you uh, know German. You can make words up much more easily than you can in English because there are parts of words that simply you bring together. The work, word he uses here, it's a neologism, is Herzwerk, heart work. Heart work. What, 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 what is heart work for Rilke? Heart work was the tenacious refusal to look away from what's real. Again, not sentimental, not nostalgic. I would say bluntly honest and profoundly patient. Profoundly patient. Do now the hard work with the images you hold within. For you overpower them, but you don't yet know them. This little excerpt of a poem to me frames what I understand the spiritual life to be about and what we'll explore in the hours we have together today. Because each of us, the spiritual life is something that we in involve ourselves in. It doesn't happen to us. It happens through us, but not to us. It happens because we learn to pay attention, because we give our energy to paying attention to what's real around us in our world and within us in that inner world. And for Rilke, heart work was the best way, the best word he could come up with to explain what this is like. Because each of us, it's, it's why I think as well, the journey into the spiritual life deepens as we grow older because we've accumulated images. We've accumulated many experiences in our lives. And the question really for each one of you is, what do I do with that? How can I be a steward of my life? How can I hold my life firmly and gently enough to let it live and breathe in the way that God yearns for that life, my life, your life, to live and breathe? 
That's what he calls hard work. It's a word he never used again in his writing, but the poem is a central enough poem in his whole scope of writing that you can begin to see how at this point in his life, 1914, things began to change for him as an artist, as a journeyer, a spiritual journeyer, um, as a human being. And what he saw so clearly is that what we do with what we hold is more important than what we hold within us. What we do with the images, with the experiences that have happened to us, that have happened through us, is far more important than what's happened to us or through us. Because many people in this life, well, Eliot put it well, humankind cannot bear much reality. We simply turn away from what's real. We can't bear. The spiritual journey is finding the courage and the conviction to pause with your life. Come back to find a second seeing, an inner vision by which those things can be healed, can be moved forward. So that's just the kind of where we're going to be going today, that background. Here's a great text. You all know it, the very beginning of the Bible, the Old Testament, the first book of Moses, in the beginning. In the beginning, you probably memorized this in Sunday school, some of you at least, didn't you? No? In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. I, I remember as a child, I must have had a, a picture Bible, as we all did at that time. You probably had one too. I don't think this was an image that was pictured. It's a hard image to picture. What do you think of when you think of this image? What are you seeing when you see this image? Darkness, yeah? Emptiness, emptiness, which is a hard thing to see, isn't it? It's, but it's so powerful. There's an emptiness. There's a void there. There's a, a dark void here. And what's happening? What's happening in this dark, empty place? Sorry? Creation is happening. We know that from the story. I'm not sure you would know it if you just read this text. What's happening? It feels chaotic. It feels chaotic. It's chaos. It's, th there's no order. You can't see anything. You can feel. You can feel the kind of pressure of this dark void. But you can't see anything yet. Yet. The Bible begins in absolute darkness. It's an amazing, we, we often overlook that. The creation story begins in chaos, in a void in an empty place, a formless void. And darkness covered the face of the deep. What a great image, the face of the deep. The face of the deep. While a wind from God swept over the face of the water. So we have water. 
We have water. No land, but water. We have water. We have darkness. We have chaos. How does it make you feel? What are you feeling right now? A little, sorry? Fear. Fear. Absolutely. I mean, to be in a place where there's nothing to stand on is a terrifying thing. And very small. Very small. That's where the, the, the grand story begins with this terror, really, of darkness, which is one of the most primal ways we experience darkness in our lives. Somebody did a measurement in North America, in the United States, in the 48 states. Could they find a place of absolute darkness? And there were only half a dozen where there was absolutely no ambient light coming from something else. We don't know much about darkness. And there's a reason for it, the reason why we illuminate the night. But the Bible begins with a different story. And here's this strange phrase, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Just like that. Not land, first light. So there's still wind sweeping over the waters. There's a sense of chaos still, but there's light. Now, Paul, when he is writing about the Christian, the spiritual journey to the Corinthians, comes up with a phrase that when I first read it many, many years ago, struck me as a very strange way of doing what would later have been called a midrash on this text, of interpreting the text. Paul doesn't quote much scripture in his letters. It's a bit surprising as a good Jew he might have done. But he quotes a scripture in this letter to the Corinthians that's utterly stunning. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, in a sense, that's exactly the beginning part, what the story of creation, how it begins. But he does something interesting here. Because if you read the text from Genesis, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. What's the difference with Paul? God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's not so easy. Just let there be light. Bingo. How does Paul see it? Where does the light come from for Paul? Out of the dark. Out of the darkness. And of course, it would have to. Where else could it have come from? It's dark. It's dark. It's this brooding, chaotic darkness with wind sweeping over boundless waters, no land in sight, no orientation, no place of mooring in sight. Where would the light come from but the darkness? But it's a stunning thing that Paul does. And this text, I would say more than almost any other text from Paul, or as much as any other text, roots a strong mystical tradition already in the early centuries of the Christian era, of the common era. Let light shine out of darkness. Not let there be light, but let 
light shine out of darkness. It's an amazing text, really. And it will guide our day. We'll end only at the end of the day with the line from Dionysius, or Dennis, that gives this day its name, a radiant darkness, or a dazzling darkness. Sometimes the Greek translated as a dazzling darkness. But we'll begin with this image, let light shine out of darkness. Because in a way, that's what our spiritual life is about. That's the way that we come to understand something about the mystery of God's presence in your life, in my life. Let light shine out of, not into the, not into the darkness. That's what we do. We shine a light into a dark place to make us feel at home. But Paul says something much more radical. God doesn't come and give us light to help us with our darkness. God wants the light to shine out of our darkness. Not out of the darkness, out of our darkness, as the text makes very clear, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going today, with that cluster of texts in mind. And we begin this morning with the theme, Making the Darkness Visible. That's our first hour together. Uh, the second hour before lunch, Trembling in the Dark. You'll see where these themes come from, and finally, after every night. So that's the day, Making the Darkness Visible, Trembling in the Dark, and After Every Night. So Making the Darkness Visible. Great spiritual guide, Carl Jung, C.G. Jung. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light but by making the darkness visible. And that's, in a sense, what Paul is saying in different words. How does the darkness become visible? How does the darkness become a source of light in our lives? And if you had asked me 30 years ago in my own life um, to make sense of this, I wouldn't have known what to do. I hadn't really experienced enough darkness. I've, I've caught up over the years. <laughs> life tends to do that. And it's only when we really catch up with darkness, or darkness catches up with us, that to my mind we really have the chance to enter into the mystery of Christ, into the mystery of God in our journey. No one really wants darkness, but when it comes, as it will come, as it has come, and as it will come, the question isn't how do we get rid of it, but really how do we live with it? How do we incorporate that experience into our living, into our believing, into our loving. I want to take you to a really remarkable place. I assume that probably none of you have been to Houston, Texas. Anybody? Well, if you do get to Houston, there's not a lot that you want to see. But there is one place you want to go, and that's the Rothko Chapel. A remarkable chapel built just a few years before his tragic death in the 1970s. And, you know, if you looked at this chapel, there are 14 paintings in black. You know Mark Rothko. You have some of the best Rothkos in the, in the world here in London. Lucky you at the Tate. They're not always up. Are they up now? Has anybody been? They keep, some of them are up. Yeah, amazing. There was for a long time an inner room in the Tate Modern, which um, had four panels who kind of walked into this dark room 
with these illuminated panels. Well, imagine there are 14 of these in this relatively small chapel. And it's stunning to me that he, he could imagine what would happen to create a sacred space with uh, no windows on the sides, just from above, and dark panels. They're not black panels. They're not black like my sweater. They're dark. And when you look at them closely, you begin to see the layers of color that are woven into it. Let's see if we can have a look. It's a little hard with this light. Here's uh, somebody meditating in front of one of them. And here's one of the panels that, that he or she, I don't know which it is there, is meditating in front of. I wonder if we can turn off the lights for a moment. It's a little hard to see this. The panel is about 10 by 5 by 10, 5 feet wide by maybe 10 feet tall. Off? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Now, I don't know the physiology of what would happen if, if one sits in front of a panel like this. And I'm sorry, it's really not as clear as it, sh as it could be or should be. But you can start to, can you see the texture in it? The layerings in it? They began with lighter colors and painted dark, darker colors and darker colors until finally there's a, a wash of black paint over it. But it never completely covers what's underneath. And as you sit, you don't see it immediately. This takes time. As you sit in front of this panel, one of these panels, the colors underneath begin to speak. They begin to shine. They begin to, they begin to come alive. They begin to move. They really begin to move. And something begins to happen in you, in the meditation of looking at these, at these panels. It's a kind of heart work that happens. It's seeing that no darkness can completely efface the light. It's always there. Now, I've read a little bit about Rothko's idea of painting this chapel. It was created as an ecumenical, interreligious chapel. It's claimed to be the first completely interreligious chapel devoted as a space for peoples of all religions and no religions to worship. But it's a profoundly meditative space. And it gives us, I think, a chance to see with our eyes or imagine with our eyes. Almost as looking over the shoulders of God at the beginning, who sees that there's light trapped in the darkness, that there's something in the darkness that wants to be released, that's yearning to be released, to be freed, almost. I hope you go to Houston someday and see this remarkable place, the Rothko Chapel. And here's Bernard, whom I spoke about earlier. This is one of the last of the 86 sermons he preached on the Song of Songs. Oh, sorry, it is the last. It's number 86. On the text from the third chapter, the first verse, in my little bed, this is the Latin, the Vulgate version, which you could render in English, in my little bed at night, I sought the one whom my soul loves. I sought him, but could not find him. Bernard didn't date these 86 sermons. 
and they were preached over some 20 years. It's not even entirely clear that he preached them. Certainly he did not preach them just as we have them. They've been heavily worked over. They're a work of genius. And repeatedly, if you know the Song of Songs, it's one of the two books in our scriptures that have no reference to God. None. What is it? What is the Song of Songs? It's a love story. You know, it was attributed to Solomon and his wife, but, you know, how many wives did he have? Was it 300 and 700 concubines? It's 1,000 is the number. So it's not exactly what you'd call a monogamous story, but it's a passionate story. Some biblical scholars have suggested it may be a book that was written by a woman. We don't know. There's no other book in the Bible that would come close to that. There are books about women, Ruth. But it could be that it's written by a woman. Certainly the woman is the central figure in the book. And it's a story of longing and finding and losing and yearning and searching and finding and losing. A little book with no beginning really and no end. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth is not exactly the beginning of a book because there's a lot of story before that, right? It's not the way you'd start a f even a first date, I think. <laughs> Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Strange. Ten sermons on verse 1. Ten sermons on verse 1. And eight on this verse. And in the very end of it, he's helping his brothers, his Cistercian brothers, giving them a little, almost a kind of guide on the spiritual life. It's a beautiful sermon in which he's telling them when is the best time to pray. And, well, you probably can sense what he would say at night when nothing else is stirring in the middle of the night. Because in the middle of the night, we're, we're really very exposed as people, right? Your defenses are down. When you wake in the middle of the night, maybe you've been, been in the middle of a dream, or you, you wake and you, 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 you don't even know where you are. Has that happened to you? I'm sure it's happened to you. And you, you, you have no idea where you are or, or what's real and what's not real. Bernard says, that's the time to pray because that's the place where your soul is most vulnerable to reality, to God, to the divine, to the human, to who you are. That's where you'll find out who you are. Not in the day when you've already armored yourself with your personality. You know, you've created that shell of who you think you are or who others think you are or think you ought to be. In the middle of the night, he says, when no one is watching, when no one it can disturb you, that's when you should pray. And what happens when you pray? This is where he's so interesting. Where is the night of, not the cloud of unknowing, comes later, but the author of the cloud may well have known this text. Unimaginable to me that he, unimaginable that he didn't. Equally as imaginable that he might have. The text was widespread already by the 14th century. Where is the night of unknowing more clearly described than in the psalm, they have neither insight nor understanding, 
but wander about in the darkness. It's a great image of the political tragedy that's unfolding in my country at the moment. I just feel like there are people wandering about in the darkness, pretending to be sources of light and sources of righteousness and uh, instructing everybody around them, Mr. Trump, uh, instructing everybody around them as to how we should be. But really, this is our human condition. This is, I think, a better way of thinking about sin, not as a moral category, but as a complete disorientation. The immoral acts follow from this. But at the heart of sin is not a moral confusion, but an existential crisis, really, a complete chaos. It's like that darkness brooding at the beginning of time. Certainly, this refers to the unknowing of the entire human race into which we are all born. That's a pretty sweeping statement, and Bernard means it to be that grand, that large a statement. That, in a way, darkness is not a virtue by itself. It can be a terrible burden of confusion, of violence, of greed, of selfishness, of anger, a place where all those things happen. And it can equally be a source of light. It depends on how we approach it. So we're going to spend much of today with, Rilke, with three poems of Rilke's. This is a painting done two years after his death by Pastanak, the son of the, of the writer whom he knew, met in Russia in 1899 and again in 1900, when as a young man he journeyed to Russia with his beloved Lou Andreas Salome, first journey with her, with Lou's husband as well. And this is the first poem. It's one of the poems that you might even know. If you know a few Rilke poems, this might be one of them. Mein Leben ist nicht diese steile Stunde. That's line. And let's just hear the German briefly to get the sound in our ears. Sorry, I should have the, should have noted the page here. Well, it begins, Mein Leben ist nicht diese steile Stunde, drin du mich so eilen siehst. That's, these are these lines. Mein Leben ist nicht diese steile Stunde, darin du mich so eilen siehst. My life is not this steep hour, steile Stunde, a steep hour, in which you see me hurrying so. And this poem, I think, captures something that Rilke already sensed writing at the end of a century, at the beginning of a new century, just at the edge of a new century. This poem was written in the fall of 1899. He was 24 years old, aware that the world was changing. He feared that it would be Americanized, which for him was the most horrible thing that could happen. What do you mean by that? That it would be commercialized. People wouldn't make things anymore. They wouldn't make things by hand. They would, they would, they, they would all be mass produced. And of course, this was happening in, in 
Germany, it was happening in Britain, it was happening across the world. But um, for Rilke, at least, America represented the, the most horrid vision of this. But at the moment, the hurry is what's so prominent in this poem. And you know, if there's any reason why we need to meditate as human beings, it's because we don't know how to slow ourselves down in any other way. It doesn't happen easily in other ways. One of the great lessons of meditation is to realize how cluttered our minds are and to live with that. As uh, you said so beautifully, Henrietta, not to fight against it. You, you can't win fighting against the clutter. You have to make friends with the clutter. You have to get to know it. You have to befriend it. You have to let it be there and come back to your mantra, come back to your still point. Always aware that the, the hurry is there in your mind, in your heart, in your life. My life is not this steep hour in which you see me hurrying so. I'm a tree standing before what I once was. Rilke loved the image of trees. And before we even go on with this poem, what does it suggest to you? I'm a tree standing before what I once was. Would you make, why would you make sense of it, this image? You can't be wrong, because I'm just asking you what you understand this poem to me. His identification with nature, yes. And what does a tree do? Not a lot. It stands. <laughs> it stands, yeah? Yes, you're moving ahead, but yes. Yes. Sorry? Probably. I, I envision it as a tree without leaves, but who knows? But it's a stark tree. It's a stark tree, the way he describes it. And we'll go on from this image. But I'm a tree standing before... What was he once? He wasn't a tree once. What was he once? What do you think? What was he? He was a seed. Oh, he was a seed blowing around in the wind, maybe. That's wonderful. Yeah, where does a tree come from? I'd never thought of that. A seed. He was a seed blowing from another tree, maybe carried by a bird to a far-off place. And, and then falling into the ground, in the darkness of the earth, where the tree could come forth. Yeah. I'm a tree standing before what I once was. I'm only one of my many mouths. And at that, the first to close. I'm only one. It's a strange image. He, he plays with this image in his writings, in his one novel, he begins as a long segment where he talks about how each one of us has many faces. And we keep trying on a face and we put it on, we take it off and we put another face on and take it off. Here it's mouth, we each have many mouths. Each of us has different mouths, the mouth that you use when you're talking to your beloved, the mouth that you use when you're talking to your employer or your employees the mouth that you use in church when you're praying uh, the liturgy, the mouth that you use when you're angry and frustrated, the mouth that you use when you're talking to a child. We, we have many mouths. We have many mo moods. But he's sure that his true self 
is the one that's the first. I am only one of my many mouths. And at that, the first to close. What, what, do you, what do you see there? What are you feeling? What does he mean, the first to close? What's, he, what's happening? Yeah. Of reincarnation, it could well be a sense of, re of reincarnation, of a new form coming forth. Yeah? How else might you read this? Okay. He's quieted down. He's quieted down, whether it's a new person or a moment where he's finally stopped talking. It's as if somehow our mouths are truest when we finally rest from using them. You, you've all had this experience of being with someone as wise as the three friends of Job who heard from afar that he was suffering terribly and they make the long journey to come to him. And what do they do for the first seven nights and seven days? They say Nothing. They simply bear him, his pain. And then they begin to try to explain God, why he's suffering. It gets bad from that point on. The minute they begin to talk, they begin to force reasons why he must be suffering. And of course, as we know the way the story is set up, it has nothing to do with Job's life, right? It's this devil and God thing going on. The devil, you know the story. Satan says nobody would be faithful except um, they get something good in their life. And look at that Job. He's only faithful because he's got a fantastic life. If you take it away, God, he'll give up on you. That's, what, that's the way the story is set up. So Job is agonizing through this and has three friends who try to tell him what's wrong with him, why he has caused the suffering to come. And he keeps listening with his mouth closed, knowing that that's not the truth. There's something about keeping our mouths closed that can be a remarkable experience. And when you've had a really difficult, dark season in your life, and you've had somebody come to you and just hold you, nothing that they said probably mattered. The fact that they came and held you the fact that they came and cried with you, the fact that they kept silence with you may have been the most important gift. I'm only one of my mouths, and at that, the first to close. I'm the stillness between two notes. This is a, such a beautiful image. The stillness between two notes. Da, da, that moment of stillness before the voice moves from one note to another. It's the empty spaces that makes music possible, right? It's the pause that we can't even hear between the modulations of sound that make music work. And the stillness between two notes that don't easily harmonize because the note death wants to lift itself up. These ellipses are his in the poem, not mine. 
poem isn't finished yet, so we're almost at the end of the poem. It's a short poem. But this image here, I'm the stillness between two notes that don't easily harmonize because the note death wants to lift itself up. What's the other note? He doesn't say. What's the other note? Life. Life. The note death wants to lift itself up. What, what are you feeling here? What's the sense that you have? Maybe it's the kind of chaos at the beginning of time. The struggle of life, of light and dark, happening. I don't know. I am the stillness. Not there is a stillness. I am the stillness between two notes that don't easily harmonize, that don't easily come together. Because the note death wants to lift itself up. What are you feeling there? What's, what's going on in the poem for you? Stillness contain a moment of death, yes. A moment of emptiness, like, like a moment of death. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's an Im- a wonderful image. It's approaching, sweeping us along, perhaps, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Rilke, this image is such a poignant one because he doesn't try to say, I'm in one note or in the other note. I'm in the note of life and maybe I'm in the note of death. No, I'm the stillness between the notes. I'm caught between these notes that don't easily come together, that don't easily harmonize. My life is this still point between these two notes. And now the last part of the crescendo of the poem, because in the dark interval, both come trembling to join as one. Poem isn't finished yet, his ellipses. But in the dark interval, what's the dark interval? The chaos, yeah? How else could it be? The chaos? There's tension, yeah? What else could it be? Mm, it could be. I think the stillness. I think he's trying to say it's the stillness. It's caught between things, right? The dark interval between life and death. Between death wanting to lift itself up and life wanting to hold on, perhaps. He doesn't say. There's something tenacious about the note that wants, doesn't want to let go, but death, strong note here. In the dark interval, in the stillness, in the dark interval, both come trembling to join as one. And the song sings on. Beautiful. That's the end of the poem. Could be, it could be, yeah. It could be the Alpha and the Omega coming together, beginning and the end that we're somehow in the middle of that. And, and for Rilke, in a sense, our life hangs at that point, always. Not just at the end of our life, at every moment. He's writing as a 24-year-old, not as a shortly before his own death at 51, by the way. Died an early death. 
in the dark interval, both come trembling to join as one. There's something about, it's more than the stillness. The dark interval is a powerful image. It's an image that, in a sense, has to work, wants to work on us, wants to work on me to really understand it. Yeah. Vulnerability. Absolutely. Ah, great. Yeah. Yes? Let's come back to it. Yeah? Yeah? Beautiful. Mm. Yes? Aren't quite together? Yes. And suddenly they come together? Nice. It's a wonderful image. Yeah. Yes. Something jagged. Something uneven. No. No. That's it. That's it. That's exactly it. This is, it's an ingenious poem in a way. I mean, it, it's, it's, well, we'll get to it later today again. We'll come back to it. But the dark interval, place where these two notes that have been pushing against each other somehow, right? Just, you can feel the pressure of life and death trying to push down and life holding on in this dark interval. Both come trembling. There's the vulnerability, the precariousness, the trembling. Ah. Yes. It's a strength. Yes. Good, good, good. And they join together only at the end. Right? Not at the beginning. They don't, begin, they don't come together at the beginning. No, it's at the end. Yeah, maybe. Maybe soften up. Mm -hmm. And the song goes on, sings on. That's my rather free translation of the German line. The song continues on. Beautiful. He uses an, um, an adjective here, not an adverb. The song is beautiful. The song continues. Not beautifully. The song continues beautiful. That in the energy, in the confusion, in the drama of this inner turmoil, the song never lets us down, finally. Finally, the song will prevail. This is so crucial in this tradition that we're going to look at throughout the day, that when we don't know it, the song is still singing on, beautiful as it is. And in some sense, we're given the chance in our lives to become aware of this, to welcome this, to yield to this, or to come back to Paul's image, to see the light that has already been shining in our hearts. It's already shining in our hearts, even when we don't see it. That's the stunning thing about the text. 
the new creation. I think Paul is taking the old creation text and finding in his Midrashic way a new creation story, how the creation is happening in you and where it's happening in you, in me, and that it happens through a shining into the darkness, into the chaos, into the forsakenness even that we experience. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It happens in the dark. It's happening in the dark. It's the darkness in us that actually is belonging, isn't it? Yes. It is. Making the darkness visible. Seeing the darkness as a place where our wholeness begins to begins to emerge. Begins to emerge. It's never fully there. But it's where we and it's what we least expect because we think We've been forsaken here. We've ruined things, or things have been ruined for us. What, what, however you conceive that in your life. And precisely there, Rilke sees what St. Paul sees in a different way, what Bernard, as the sermon goes on, that in the dark of unknowing comes forth the light of a new, of a new knowing. A light that shines from within us, not that shines into our darkness, but that shines from within us. So this is our beginning point today. And I hope as the day goes on, you'll find the space to think about how these images can be a way of illumining your own life from within, of seeing the kind of the texture of this shining from within your own life. Let's pause. We have a five-minute tea break, I think, or maybe a 10-minute tea break. Let's pause, and we'll come back and pick up where we started, where we left off. I'm, I'm, I'm perfect. Thanks. <laughs> 